Hola, mi gente, and welcome to the Latinx of Utah Valley podcast, where we discuss all things Latina OX. I'm your Peruana host, Mari Linares. And with me, I have Lea and Jose. Awesome. Hi, everyone. I'm Lea. I'm a queer Chicana feminist, also a faculty member here at UVU in the Department of Communication. I'm a media and news junkie. My research focuses on um, Latinx communication studies and border studies, and I'm super happy to be here. All right. And I am Jose, and I am a senior at UVU uh, studying political science with a minor in Latin American studies and hopefully going to do my master's in Latin American studies. So, yeah. That's awesome. All right, so for this episode, we're gonna take a more serious turn to talk about the tribulations that the Latinx community faces or has gone through and the impact that those tribulations have on the community. Now, going on the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, they categorize trauma under three separate categories, events, experience, and effect. So what happened, how it happened, and how long it happened are impacting factors that could affect someone's trauma or someone's trauma response or how they process certain events. For, since all of us are Latinx um, people, we are pretty familiar with the word immigration and a lot of immigration stuff that happens and goes on. But going deeper into that, like, how do you guys feel that immigration itself has affected trauma? I, I actually would say that trauma um, affects immigration in that, for example, uh, I get very political, just FYI. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know how much I can say, but um, be free reign, like all right, you but, be you. All right, so uh, the way I see immigration, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I study a lot, and that's something I really focus on, is that, for example, in the United States, when we're talking about Latin America, and the United the United States has um, waged a war both in people's home countries and at the border, uh, and when they get here, right? So, for example. Um, during the Cold War, I was, I'll talk about El Salvador because I'm Salvadorian, but this happened along many, many other countries in Latin America. The United States funded death squads that um, pursued people and led them to come here to the United States. Um, and during that time, during the Cold War of 70s and 80s, they were pretty accepting of refugees, um, like the United States was. Uh, but like after the Cold War, um, there is more of an economic battle that it, or war that is happening so for example we talk about like mexico and nafta where we see a free a free exchange of capital uh, mostly from mexico to the united states but we don't see that free exchange of people from mexico to the united states and this has always been a war that has caused people to come and Leah, I don't know if you want to add something. Yeah, so this is a perfect time for us to be talking about this topic. Jose and I just wrapped up our trauma-informed journalism class mm. <laughs> where immigration was a central component of it, particularly when you think about um, immigration between the U.S. and Latin America. And I have all kinds of thoughts on this, but I'll try to be brief. Um, first and foremost, building off of Jose's comments, um, trauma causes immigration, causes trauma, right? It's it's kind of the cyclical process that never ends. And when we think about, I think about the U.S.-Mexico border more specifically, more frequently, because I'm Mexican-American and um, grew up, born and raised in Texas, not too far from the border myself. So when we think about the border, most people think about it as this static, rigid place of violence, which it is. But then, Maria, as you probably remember in our class last semester, we talked quite a bit about how the border is shifting and shifting and moving and also takes on different meanings in different places and spaces. So something we've talked about in our trauma journalism class is how there's so much of a focus on the U.S.-Mexico border and trauma, and rightfully so, right, when we think about detention facilities, family-child separation, um, when we think about the violence and the harm done to women and transgender women. But we also don't think about the United States's role in trauma at other borders throughout Latin America, because Latin America is often framed as a 
homogenous being and not a place of our world with beautiful countries and cultures and histories, right? So lots of thoughts, but I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you guys for your thoughts and, like, your input on that. Um, And as we have, like, talked how there is immigration and their border and then there's also assimilation that, like, Get coming to a new culture and then having to mold yourself into like that culture's expectations, all of that can be very impactful and can create a lot of uh, stressors and eventually also cause trauma. And this trauma, like no matter what way it happened or occurred, it could also become generational and passed down. Like whether you are a second generation, third generation, like. Perhaps, like, your parents or grandparents or even you experience some sort of trauma, like, with, like, just immigration or anything coming here, and it is passed down. So on that note, um, when, if ever, have you seen or experienced that trauma merge to become intergenerational? I mean, I think as... um, Latine, I, I prefer the word Latine, but uh, Latine people in the United States, um, like I said, right, um, a lot of them have been escaping poverty and violence, and poverty is violence in itself, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we, as they come to the United States, um, a lot of our, like, parents, grandparents uh, kind of try to keep, they try to do the best they can to assimilate. And for example, like, I'll talk about El Salvador again. Uh, when after the uh, During the war, uh, Salvadorians would come to Los Angeles, and they would form gangs because they would be attacked by Mexican gangs, by uh, Asian gangs, I believe, and, like, the Bloods and the Crips. Um, so, like, they try to f- form this bond, right? And when you go back, and they get sent back to El Salvador in the 90s, um, to, and they impact, they traumatize a lot of people there. And then, going back to my story, for example, um, that gang war brought me here to the United States, right? Um, and I have to deal with my pa- my parents and grandparents' generational trauma of living through a war, living through gang violence. Um, then I also experienced that as well. But as I am growing up here, I have to navigate my own identity and, um, yeah, different aspects of that. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, and, and the identity is central, right, when we're thinking about intergenerational trauma. Um my family has an interesting sort of migration history because on my mom's side, when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed in 1848, the border literally crossed them. And before 1848, all of my mom's family were Norteños, essentially living in northern Mexico, became American citizens overnight and then had their land taken. Right. So especially when we think about shifting and shape, shifting borders that shape all of this. Right. It's like you become a citizen of a new place, you don't understand the language, you don't understand the cultural norms, and what do you do to survive? You have to assimilate, right? And when we think about assimilation, it's also helpful to think about forced assimilation as well. Um, I think a lot about how in Texas, the educational school system, as it has been in many other states, as we know, right, would bar the teaching of Mexican-American history classes. They wouldn't let you speak Spanish on schools. If you did, you could get expelled and so on and so forth. So with my parents having grown up in that era, they decided not to teach my sister and me Spanish when we were younger as a means of assimilating, fitting in, and surviving so that we wouldn't go through the same things we did. Um, So when we think about the intergenerational trauma of migration, of identity being stolen from us, of our languages being stolen from us, we can see how... Um, intergenerational trauma takes many forms through many ancestral levels. And going back to um, what Leo was talking about, identity, right? We mm-hmm. also have more violent ways of um, forced assimilation. Um, well, like we have family separation, which has always mm-hmm. been a staple of the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that happened in the last 20 years. It's always been a staple of the border. Um, like in 1965, uh, we have the Heart Seller Act, which prioritized family... Um, reunification implying that there's family separation um and now we see more extremes of that where children are being separated from their uh from their families and a lot of times they they won't even go back to them right so dealing with that identity is important and me as like i identify as a latino right um because i see my identity being shaped by the separation of families and also the separation of land Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which for me, that's what makes the Latino identity here in the United States. 
And when we think about it from a health perspective, there's so much research coming out now that's looking at the trauma that young children are facing after they've been separated, right, with no plans of reunification. They've been placed in foster care systems without the parents having any idea of where they've been placed, what state they're living in now. And the research on it from a health communication standpoint is heartbreaking because these are children as young as two years old, right, who are now starting to exhibit symptoms of PTSD as would any service member or anyone who's lived through a war, right? So to be honest, we don't even know just yet how bad the lifelong trauma will be for these young children. And again, if we go back to thinking about the legality of this all, it's 100% legal, right? And I think that's a whole other atrocity in and of itself. Okay, so under, like, with my own, like, experience with that, um, when I was living in Peru, like, we had, I don't know how much you guys know about, like, presidents of Peru, but, like, we had, like, Fujimori was, like, our president, at that time so there was a lot of violence a lot of like attacks a lot of like insecurities like unsafe like everything was unsafe um economically and physically so already with that like my family in peru especially my parents like they had this already like trauma like ptsd forming from all of like all of those experiences and then like coming to the u.s all of us well well my parents and me and my brothers because then later several years later my two sisters were born but with the five of us my parents and my brothers me and my brothers um coming to the u.s and like my dad he already had a bachelor's degree but it didn't he had to get another one here because it didn't i don't know it's just i don't know what the term was but they didn't like consider it qualified enough like they wanted him to get one here so he had to go through school all over again. And, like, he had already paid for so much over there in Peru. So, like, having to come here and, like, also, like, all of us having to adjust to a whole new way of life. Because different cultures, like, even within, like, our own Latinx community, we have different cultures. So then coming to a completely different, like, side of, like, way of seeing, way of speaking, way of, like, being. Like, it threw, like, my whole family into a shock. And so um, I know, like... Sometimes, like, there will be things, and it may, like, trigger some, like, family members in certain ways. Like, even for myself, like, certain topics may be very triggering, and it's, like, um, it's just, like, the impact that certain experiences had that now we carry, like, personally in different ways. Um, But on a lighter, I mean, less serious note, talking about examples, um, and one that most of y'all are familiar with is the movie Encanto. (laughs) It shows the abuela, I forgot her name, um, but she is being forced out of her country because she is being attacked and chased. Her and her family are all being chased by, doesn't really specify who, but it's just the idea of being forced out of your country, like terrorized and having to flee. So now she's a refuge. Um, And because of her feeling that she needed to protect something because at that time she just had her like babies at that time and so she felt like she needed to protect them with all her life uh because of that like now we see like in that movie like as it processes through like she still feels like that need to have everything under control everything has to be like a certain way everything nothing can go out of place because it's just like that trauma response like i have to be in control of everything i have to make sure that everything is right everything's okay um but that's, like, for those who have seen, like, who are familiar, which many are familiar with this movie. It's something that, um, especially for those friends that are listening to this podcast and this episode that are not from the Latinx community and are not too familiar with, like, immigration or um, assimilation or border or any of that. Like, many of y'all have seen this movie and other movies that also talk on, like, trauma and generational trauma and, like, survival. Um this is an example that y'all can kind of turn to to kind of better understand like the things that we're talking about the trauma the immigration the border violence a lot of the heavy stuff that is that happens within the latinx community or to the latinx community or latine as jose prefers yeah um but with that um what are to you guys what are some other impacting factors that may affect uh like trauma within the like the community because again like border is one and sometimes border can break off into different impacts so 
Oh, man. I just think about all of the factors related to our own culture and how we define it, right? And this is part of the existential peril I face every time I design a class that focuses on Latina or XA or Latin American topics, right? How do we talk about the realities of our cultural identities and experiences without um, kind of making the trauma permanent as if that's the only thing that characterizes how we come to know ourselves, right? So I think about, when I think about intergenerational trauma, I think about associated concepts of mental health, substance abuse, um, violence within our own families that are rooted to in many times a lot of Latinx, Latinx cultures' inability to create safe spaces to talk about those traumas, right? When we think about intergenerational trauma passed down rooted in gender norms and cultural norms, um, I always think about how we can create better spaces to help like our mothers and fathers talk about their emotional triggers and their traumas wrapped up in machismo and marianismo and all these other concepts that are thrown around in academia as if they're just a word or just a variable. But for many of us, they're our real lives. Right. So, yeah. So what do you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I am like thinking about like a lot of like what uh, Leandro said, but also kind of embracing uh, some of the outcomes of that trauma, mm-hmm. right? Um, for example, like some machis- like some parts of machismo are, like, are, can be positive. Uh, some parts of like marianismo can be positive and it can be very negative. Same thing for machismo, uh, right? For example, I know for me, at least I take a very like traditionally masculine Latino role, uh, which has helped me, which has helped me like kind of navigate the world and has kind of centered me but also recognizing of the toxic factors that that entails uh, and addressing them while at the same time keeping that uh, trauma response to, like, ground myself continually. Yeah, and there's um, a lot of Chicana feminists like Gloria Anzalua and Ana Castillo, like, whose writings have been fundamental in shaping how I view things like uh, machismo and marianismo, like, even to the point to where I share these books with my dad, right, back in the day, and I'd be like, Look, I know that when I was growing up, teachers and educators always told me that machismo was bad, that it was like a scourge on our culture, things of that nature. But like Jose said, it can also be like this place of love and support and care for your family members of all generations, right? Like I think about my own dad as stoic as he is. Like he always took great pride in being a good father and a good husband and a good caregiver. And these are the parts, I think, in reaction to masculine intergenerational trauma that came before him, that was kind of his response to that, right? Like, we're going to break that cycle and we're going to do things differently. But these are also parts of our experience that aren't always told in academic journal articles or in books or even in pop culture, right? Yeah. And going off of, like, the academic side, um, Leah, I know that you, like, have done a lot of research, like, on gender violence and on border and all of that. And one thing that I know that you have focused a lot on is, I think it's called feminismo. Oh, feminicidio? Uh, feminicidio. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> feminicidio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because femi- <laughs> But could you, like, give us a little brief, like, explanation on what that is? Yeah, and Jose, feel free to hop in, right? Because I know we've had several conversations about this uh, in other contexts. But uh, feminicidio is essentially the murder of and violence against women just out of pure misogyny, patriarchal hatred. Like, there's no good explanation for it, right? Um, Historically, in academic circles, we saw the term feminicidio become more apparent in the early 1990s in relation to... Um, the United States' relationship to NAFTA, as Osa mentioned earlier, um, missing and disappeared women at the U.S.-Mexico border, particularly in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And as we're starting to see now more recently, of course, feminicidio is not just a term that characterizes anything throughout Latin America. It's also gender violence that we see happening um, across the world. But the term itself grew out of conversations between white American feminists and Mexican feminists more specifically. And there are several different types of feminicidio or violence against women, like uh, familial feminicide, kind of related to honor killings, if you will, um, sexual feminicide and systematic femicide, if we're thinking about violence against um, women, 
um, adult film stars or perhaps sex workers or something along those lines. And then my research with my good friend uh, Sarah de los Santos Upton has looked at violence against women in reproductive context. So if we're thinking about the murdering of pregnant women, the taking away of women's ability to do family planning, and also keep in mind, like, this isn't just something that affects women, right? Because this violence against women also affects their men, their husbands, their families, their loved ones, and on and on. So it's it's much of a... It's part of a much larger sort of gender violence um, phenomenon, essentially. Um, well, we would take that in a deeper way also and how it doesn't just affect cisgender women. Like also, for example, transgender women. And then you also have like, um, I, I'm not too familiar with like, I, I only know like uh, simple, basic like terms in the queer community, but just like incorporate all of them like... Some people that have more like who lean more on their feminine side or are part of the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like they're all impacted by this feminicidio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the violence of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so there, there, there are attacks. For example, I mean, I'll kind of talk a little bit about health. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in El Salvador, it's one of the countries that's one of the strictest laws on abortions. Yep. Um, and women, even for having miscarriages. Uh, get imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like. Oh yeah. Like it's some, even happening in Texas here too. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah. It's true. But mm-hmm. even with miscarriages. Yeah. Even with miscarriages. Like the slightest thing, like triggers them to get jailed. So yeah, Salvador is like very very strict on that. Uh, but also I, like as a cisgendered man, I can also recognize that there's some violence on, fe- <laughs> feminine presenting men. Mm-hmm. in El Salvador um, and across the border as well like um, there's a transgender woman that died a Salvadorian transgender woman that was murdered for like her gender identity uh, right and uh, we talked about that in class but yeah I just mm-hmm. wanted to like kind of highlight that as well yeah like at, um, in one of our other case studies we talk about in class too and we also talked about this in our class mm-hmm. last semester together our Latina OXA communication studies class that um Violence against transgender migrants at the border is just happening at alarming, shockingly terrifying rates. But it's one of the things we hear about the least in the media, especially when we're thinking about um, agenda setting and what's currently on the gamut for that day. And um, even one of the women who was interviewed in, I believe it was an article published in The Guardian, she, I can't remember if she was from Mexico or Venezuela, but she said, going home for me would be like killing myself or or dying by suicide, essentially. And then we're starting to see reports coming up of um, several transgender women who have died in ICE custody, of transgender women who have been reported in the media using their dead names, which is also highly problematic from a reporting perspective. And when we think about the violence that is done against men who are perhaps more feminine presenting, even if they are cisgender men, we can see how, like, the violence operates in terms of the violence that is done to the feminine, like, more broadly, right? So it's it's just hugely, hugely problematic. Okay. And going on this, like, the way that the media has either helped or hurt this... Um I'm so interested. I'm ready for this. He's ready. I'm ready for this. I actually did my research for this one. Yes. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love how you guys are all ready fire for this. Okay. Perfect timing. So, (laughs) and like talking about like the ways that the media has helped or hurt like the Latinx community, like with your guys, like in your perspectives or your opinions, um, how has the media, like in, like, how have you seen the media help or how have you seen it hurt the Latinx community? with how it portrays this violence or the violence and trauma or how it has portrayed like Latinx community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, like, I, I can talk about a little bit at the border. Okay. Uh, for example, um, and I'll talk, uh, talk about it a little bit historically. Um, so for example, very early in the 1920s and 1910s, there, when people from Mexico were coming to the border, they would often get washed with uh, Citron B. Um, which, and it was to counter the Spanish influenza at the time. Uh, but we also see that literally last year or like even today, right? Uh, with Haitian immigrants or ha- Haitian refugee seekers that got turned away because of 
Donald Trump's and uh, and Biden's Title 42 uh, because they had COVID. Uh, Could you expand a little bit on what that Title 42 is? Uh, so it's okay. So it's basically <laughs> he's ready. This gets he's me ready. fired up. I literally okay. <laughs> I love it. Let's hear it. Yeah. So it's this white nativist uh, policy in, that the Trump administration put in place. The one of the very very few ones that they put in place. Um, during COVID, uh, and it was, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting very intense. Uh, and it was crafted by Stephen Miller, who is, uh, uh uh-huh. who is a demon. Uh, I will say that. <laughs> he was the former, <laughs> former head of, uh, IHS or, no, uh, not Homeland, IHS. Homeland. Homeland Security. Yeah, Homeland Security. Um, so he, he, he was like a white nativist as well. He's a horrible human being. Um, and so the Biden administration kept that kept that policy title 42 they just barely announced that they would end it like last week uh knowing that they've had a year and a couple months to do that um and title 42 basically allows the government to turn away any asylum seekers at the border um with the excuse of covid um so that that's what title 42 is so we see this like attack also on like health at the border um, and then how the media portrays it as well is like, for example, we have Tucker Car- Carlson, who is also a demon. Uh, <laughs> the way that you're I describing am, these people. <laughs> yeah, no, they are horrible people. Um, Tucker Carlson basically talking about um, immigrants are coming here to vote for Democrats, which um, is like an old time uh, rhetoric. Like they, they would talk very, in the like 1930s, 1940s, they would talk about um how immigrants would affect the white uh, polit- politics of America. And we still see that today with, like, Tucker Carlson. But, like, also it's such a, like, dumb lie that, you know, immigrants are coming here to vote Democrat, which also in itself is very problematic because especially Latinx or Latine uh, immigrants are very diverse in how they vote, especially now. Um, but, yeah, Leah, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so going going to your points about, like, the nativist rhetoric that, we saw in our history and that we're seeing now. There's this really great book um, by Melita Garza called They Came to Toil. And if I remember correctly, Melita Garza is a professor, perhaps at University of Texas, San Antonio, or at least was last time I checked. But her book does such an excellent job looking at the historical way in which um, Latin American migrants were framed in early American newspapers and then relating that to our present time. So all of the same rhetoric that we're seeing now with the Trump um, presidential administration and just people across the board, right, in terms of how they frame migrants, how they frame migrant communities, these are all rooted in historical presidential administrations and historical newspaper outlets, right? So it's really nothing new. Um, And also, when we think about other media angles like pop culture and film, one of the concepts that comes to mind for me is symbolic annihilation, which is a traditional media studies term that essentially has illustrated how minoritized communities, historically the concept focused on racial ethnic minorities, right? How minoritized communities have either been demonized, vilified, or just straight up not present in the media at all, right? So something I always talk about with um, our media classes is, what are your thoughts on what's better or what's worse? Having bad representation in the media or no representation at all. And really, it's not an either or. It's a both and, right? But um, it helps us think about how different media systems work together to create either very problematic stereotypes, not just running with something a political candidate says, but then making that the focus of the news for a very long time, but also thinking about representations in film, in comic books, in literature, right? Because it's all connected. And we've talked a lot about Encanto. I know Coco comes up quite a bit. But even then, some of those films, as you noted, Mm -hmm. Maria, have um, a lot of allusions to trauma and everything else. So then when we think at the end of the day about the concept of authenticity, what would an authentic Latinx representation look like in the media? You know, that could be a whole other episode in and of itself, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and hopping on to what Leia said about vilifying, and I'm going back to immigrants here. Um, We have, like, also seen this terrorist rhetoric also stemming from, like, very early in the 1900s with, like, Pancho Villa, Mm -hmm. uh, which he was, like, a golden child for the United States for a little bit. And then when he started going more into the United States, uh, they talked about him like a terrorist and to reinforce the border. And that's where we see like the very, very, very early uh, iterations of what, of what is happening now. 
Um, and then, for example, during the Cold War, um, immigrants would get linked to, like, the Soviet Union and Nicaragua and Cuba. And, like, um, they, they would talk about them like terrorists. Like, every single um, kind of bad thing is always kind of put on immigrants. Um, whether that be, like a, health, like, a health challenge, like, with Haitians and early Mexicans, 1920s, or we see, like, a terrorist threat. And that is also portrayed in policy, which is very important. Um, 2001, after the after the after 9/11, we saw the creation of the Homeland Security, which included ICE. Um, and there was a lot of rhetoric, like very early in the two, 2000s, where they would talk about them as like, um, so Al Qaeda would go to Latin, and it sounds so stupid because it is Al Qaeda would go to Latin America and adopt Latin American sounding names, and just because they were brown, they would like sneak um, unauthorized through the border. Um, to do th- terror threats, which is obviously stupid, right? So, but we have always seen this like war on immigrants uh, as terrorists, as health, um, like um, problems, um, and which we will continue to see in the future. Um, so yeah, that's that's all I have to add. And it's really interesting how that plays out in pop culture too, right? The connection between um, migrant communities from all over the world and how they're vilified in the media. And the reason this is on my brain is because I just watched these films recently while I was grading, right? Background films. Um, but we were watching Sicario and Sicario 2. Have y'all ever seen those movies? Mm-hmm. They came out a, a while ago. But um, they're basically, uh, you know action films about immigration and border patrol and, you know, um, actions that are carried out by the U.S. government across the border in Mexico and so on and so forth. And the first film focuses specifically on the U.S.-Mexico border and how they're trying to catch one of the drug pins, et cetera, et cetera, a narrative we hear about all the time. But then the second one, the film opens with um, – Middle Eastern terrorist attacks, one of whom bombs a store, and then another one is trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. And then in the—sorry, spoiler alerts—in the opening scene, um, the individual pulls out his prayer rugs and starts praying and then bombs himself. And then that sets the tone for, like, the violence against and perceptions of migrant communities throughout Latin America. And I just remember thinking how interesting it was in the second film, how different migrant communities come into play in this larger discourse about um, terrorists and threats and violence and and everything else. And I was like, what function does that serve? And Jose kind of hit the nail on the head already, right? It's when it's easier to vilify more people when the rhetoric is galvanized towards all of them. And it's very much them against us. And also it's interesting that the United States has, like, in movies like that, and even, like, Narcos, Narcos Mexico, I love that series. It's good, really good series. But the United States agents are usually the good guys that are, like, catching the bad Mexican uh, people uh, that, like, are drug, drug drug lords. But it's, like, very interesting how the United States has also funded uh, those cartels. Uh, for example, we saw 2010 Operation Fast and Furious that the, um, the United States was, like, sending weapons over to Mexico. And like tracing them, which ended up in the hands of like sicarios and drug traffickers. So it's very interesting how pop culture really creates this divide in, between Latin America and like Mex and Latin America and the United States. Yeah, and then I remember in a class that I had with you, Leia, that when we we looked at all these problematic. Um, advertisements oh yeah yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> like some of them i can remember um there was one for example that had an image of a lot of latina women and they were wearing very revealing pro- provocative kind of clothing and they had like uh cleaning supplies and i think i, I don't remember what the title was i think it was like uh, oh, it was the one on the PowerPoint slide yes. too. Yeah, I remember. I remember. Do I you just remember the title of it. What did it say? It was like crazy Latinas or something, like Latina Latina made. Yeah. Oh, or like spicy or oh, something spicy like that. Oh, um, like the way that it has portrayed and the way that it like the media has even like sexualized mm-hmm. the like community. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like it goes both ways, like guys and girls, like how it has done it for both. Like with guys, I have noticed that a lot of times, like the times that like there is a guy that is like a, considered a good character in the show is because like, either he has like a very deep voice or he kind of has like all like the stereotypical like um, 
what a lot of uh, people, I don't know, like the stereotypical like ways that they would want a Latin like man to look like. Mm-hmm. And those are the like, guys that get the certain roles that are seen as good roles in like the show. But not even like the main roles, it's just like the not villainized roles. Or, and even like with females, like it's a lot of sexualization, like with like the roles that they are forced to play or the ones that they get, either this role or no role. Mm-hmm. Um, even in like buying supplies, like I remember we were like looking at this one advertisement that had like for hot chocolate. And oh, it was like, <laughs> Abuelita hot chocolate. Yeah, it was yes. Abuelita hot chocolate that should. Like, the, a great advertisement for that would have been, like, something that hit on the nostalgia of, like, being with your family or of mm-hmm. having some hot chocolate. But, no, it was the advertisement hit on phrases such as, like, uh, uh, spicy like a Latina or, like, hot like a Latina or something yeah, like that. Yeah, get, like, a little Latin spice in your life or something like yeah. that. It's, like, it's coffee creamer, people. Like, it's we coffee creamer. <laughs> it's going to push... And that, <laughs> <laughs> and this could also this itself could also be a whole other episode of the, the way that like advertisement is like try like how people try to market to the Latin community and how like the media the way that it has portrayed the Latinx community mm-hmm. um, affects the erroneous ways that marketing like marketing teams try to reach the Latinx community. Mm-hmm. But now going off like on a like the opposite side like how media has helped uh, the Latinx community. And going more to like pop culture, like for example, Instagram, um, there is an Instagram handle that I absolutely love and it's uh, called Latinx Parenting, which I know, Leah, you know a lot about. <laughs> and, it's such a good one. Yeah. And this po- like this uh, Instagram um, focuses a lot on ending generational, like not even trauma, but like just ways of raising that are toxic, like raising children that are toxic that... We don't even know why we do it. It was just picked up on from our parents who picked it up from their parents mm-hmm. and so forth. And she does a lot on, like, going down to, like, the more gentler roots, like, taking out the negative from the community and focusing on the positive. Um, and she focuses a lot on, like, like ending chancla culture, which itself is a, an, um, it's a term that uses to, like, like, ending the way, like, ending the... Like, the physical abuse, the mental abuse, emotional abuse that, like, parenting in the life community sometimes has, like, or sometimes takes on raising children. Like, how they feel they're expected to raise their children. Like, this account, this Instagram account, um, tears that down, like, breaks that apart. Goes into, like, why do we do this? Why do we feel the need to do this? Um, and even what can we do to stop it like how do we know when like we're doing something because we feel because it is right or because we were taught by fear that we need to do it and i absolutely i love i love love that that account (laughs) Um, it's such a good one it is and if y'all aren't following it y'all should start following it out because there's so much information on that account um again it's at latinx parenting so l-a-n-l-a-t-i-n-x P-A-R-E-N-T-I-N-G. So, and then another one that, another media form that I feel like has helped the community is um, on This American Life's Pulitzer winning episode on the border. So This American Life is a journalist podcast. And one of their episodes, which won the Pulitzer Prize for like podcasts, was based on the border. And... If any of you guys want to listen to it, you can just go to their website, thisamericanlife.org, and go through, like, their Our Pulitzer Winning Episodes category and look at the one that has border on it. That's the one that I'm referring to. And that one really, like, the journalist really took in and went to the border, really took some time and showed, they they shone light, they, they showed their light, shined their light, there we go. They shined their light on... Everything that's happening at the border, not just the good, not not just like the actual people like being able to come in, but everything, even like the process of like being able to seek asylum and like different things that happen that prevents people from getting that asylum. So journalism itself in a more modern way, like podcasts, like as this podcast, this podcast too, like uh, all different ways that media has helped and is helping the Latinx community. So we have good, we have good impacts and we have bad impacts so and i'm kind of glad we broke out of like the chancla spicy hot Uh memes oh man those are horrible (laughs) 
<laughs> like 2015 memes about Latinos, man. That was that was hard. Um, yeah. Or like the hot cheetah girl or whatever. Yeah, the hot. Oh man, that oh. was. Oh y'all, there are so <laughs> many we could talk about yeah. here. So many. To your point about social media, though, I think that one's really fascinating because. Um, It's probably no surprise here, but there has been so much research done by the Pew Research Center that looks at uh, Latina OXE communities' use of media more broadly, right? So, like, historically, our communities generally gravitated toward radio because that was huge in, Mm -hmm. in many of our cultures and still is, right? And then now, as we fast forward all the way to social media, there is real power here in the digital interactivity nature of that for Latina OX uh, communities, right? The ability for us to create our own media, to frame our culture in the way that we want to, right? Media by us, for us. And Latinx parenting is such a good example of that. Um, My colleague and good friend, Sarah de los Santos Upton, whom I mentioned earlier, she was the one who first introduced me to that account. And I now know so many people, myself included, where we share that media with our parents, our tios, our tias, with everyone we know, also as a way of just opening up the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Like whether we're thinking about emotions or trauma or struggles or all the joys, like I don't know about y'all, but I remember when I was younger, I didn't know how to have those conversations with my parents. I remember if I told my mom, I think I'm having an anxiety attack. And she'd be like, why would you have anxiety? Your life is perfect. (laughs) Although now that I'm older in my adult life and we all know we have anxiety, right? That's a story for a different day. But it's just (laughs) an easier way to open up the conversations culturally that I think most folks wouldn't know how to do if we didn't have some of those memes or some of those talking prompts mm-hmm. or something like that. A lot of power to that. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so kind of like nearing the end of this episode, I know like some of our episodes, for those who are consistent with listening to them, have ranged from like being an hour, from being like around there. Um, I'm not sure how long this one is, but it's kind of on the shorter end, I feel, because we're very direct on this topic because it's stuff that can't be, we can't talk about, like, we can't jump around about, and it has to be something we hit straight on the nail. Um, but kind of, like, heading towards the closure of this episode, um, for all y'all, like, how can we as Latinx have unity with each other amidst the hardships that we face? Like, we know we have hardships, like, whether it be from coming here or from being second generation, dealing with, like, PTSD from other, like, generations or even, like, the media's influence or, like, all of these tribulations that we face, um, even racism, which is a still a very prominent thing that goes on and now it's more like something that goes on through like hidden like phrases or like double meaning words like words that have double meanings so how can we as latinx have unity with each other throughout all this that's such a good question okay i have a few words the three things that come to my mind with this question are grace love and accountability Mm -hmm. and i say this because Um, Like I mentioned earlier, when I was younger, I think about it a lot through a relationality family perspective, right? When I was younger, um, I didn't know how to have a lot of these conversations with my parents, my siblings, my loved ones. And now as I've gotten older, I've been drawing on a lot of these resources that we have to create the space for this, right? So I think it goes back to having the grace to acknowledge that our elder family members were born and raised and socialized in a very particular time in our history, which might have impacted um, how they raised us or things that they did when we were younger. And it's also having the love to acknowledge that, but the love to keep people accountable. Like I've been having all kinds of conversations with my parents and my sister and my family members about like why we have the term Latinx, what terms like pansexual mean, why we have all of these terms for queerness and intersectionality and things of that nature. And the conversations were not always easy to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. But they're getting there. So it's mm-hmm. it's a process. And those three words have kind of helped anchor me to think about, like, not only how we can teach our family members, but those in our community as well, like, how things are shifting and evolving and why we need to make space for that. Yeah, I, I would probably say also, like, recognizing differences. Um being very aware of those differences and navigating through them to create that unity. 
I feel like a lot of times, like as Latine people here in the United States, um, we have been brought down to this like this like very reductive identity mm-hmm. um, that leaves a lot of us out. Um, and even the term like Latinx um, is not good for unity um, because it makes people question like, am I like like mm-hmm. if I was born here, am I Latino? Right? Mm-hmm. It's a it's an exclusive term. Um, so being able to have those conversations with ourselves and with each other, being respectful of those conversations, like Leia said, with love, uh, but also being accountable, I think are the, the things I'll do. Yeah, because even we can't agree on what term we use to identify yeah. ourselves, right? But at least we can respect each other enough to know that we have different identities and experiences and there's there's room for all of it, I think. Mm-hmm. These are conversations we're even having on campus when it comes to, like, our book clubs and our classes <laughs> and everything else, right? And the process goes on and on. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and even, like, yeah, terms, because we have Chicana, we have Latina, we have Latinx, which I kind of, like, for me, I kind of go, like, Latina, Latinx, Latina, like, I kind of use, like, because it's really hard to just, like, mm-hmm. pinpoint one term because we're not one, like, we can't just be homogenized into one category. But, but yeah, like, and then um, for those who are, like, on the other end, like, who are going through tribulations and all of that or have been going through them, like, how can we create a safe place for them? Like, how can we make that, like, so that they feel safe, like, talking to us? Like, how can we create a safe place for the Latinx community? I think honoring our experiences and our perspectives is really important. And these are conversations that I have in queer spaces with folks who want to be allies, conversations I have in our Latino XS spaces with um, folks who want to support but aren't necessarily there. Also acknowledging the shared struggle across difference and across identity, kind of going back to Jose's point. And I think if I had to say it succinctly, it would come down to, like, honoring each other's experiences and perspectives, but also recognizing, like, the ownership of those experiences and perspectives as well. I don't know if you have anything you'd add. Yeah, I know. I definitely, I 100% agree with that. Um, yeah. Like, um, like for example, okay, I'm going to draw down real quick. It was hard finding safe, safe space to be, like, the Latino that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because I said, like, we have been reduced to this, like, very, this very dumb stereotype that... It was very hard to find safe spaces, but through having those conversations uh, about some problematic conversations as well, right? Like, um, like what term should we use? Things like that. I have found that safe space because um, I have found people like Leia, like you, that like honor that difference that I have, and we navigate through it together, right? So, being aware of those uh, like differences is very important um, to create a safe space. I love the way that, I, I love your guys' answers um, and how you guys, because I know that is a hard question. Like, how can we create a safe place for other Latinx people? And it's true. Like, a lot of it has to do with like, like respecting them, honoring them, and in that, like, many people have different perspectives about what honoring means. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's giving, like, being like patient, giving them your time, like listening to them. Maybe like, they're like you have some friends that are going through some traumatic stuff or have gone through traumatic stuff like instead of like instead of attacking them or making it like a joke like oh like you're just being this or you're just being too much of this like respect their feelings because everybody is entitled to their emotions emotions are very much real and so or maybe even educating yourself on something that may be going on with a friend or with like people that you know that are part of the Latinx community like maybe educating yourself a little bit more to broaden your understanding of what they're going through and be someone who they can turn to and listen like you can listen to them um but then to wrap this up uh what advice do you have for latinx people who are going through hardships i'm just throwing these at you guys last one guys last one i think a lot about solidarity and alliance if you can find it right Mm -hmm. um so when I first moved to Salt Lake City as a queer brown girl, I was like, um, I moved here by myself. My partner was still living in Japan. I was brand new to UVU. I started um, trying to make more friends through the rock climbing world. And the next thing you know, fast forward three years later, we now have a queer climbing group and a BIPOC group 
where we have kind of formed alliances to hold intersectional climbing events every two months on top of our regularly scheduled programming as a way of kind of saying, like, I acknowledge the struggles you face, you acknowledge the struggles we face, but we can come together and work together to create a safer and braver space for everyone. And real talk, if I didn't have those two groups at the gym, because many of us hold both identities as BIPOC folks and um, LGBTQIA plus folks, like, if if I didn't have that when I first got here, I don't know who I would have turned to physically in this state to make friends or find connection or anything like that. So if it's possible, I think that solidarity and alliance building when done well can really do a whole wealth of good from a social support trauma perspective. Yeah. Well, like, I can't really say, you know, like, just be strong have grit because oh yeah people yeah no like, we you know, don't like, like grit <laughs> grit's hard it's bad the, yeah don't <laughs> it's okay it's okay to be like to not have grit mm-hmm. um but like leia said i think having solidarity is very important um finding community which in utah can be very hard for uh latina latina latino people um so yeah i would say <laughs> community even like i'm going through some stuff right and it even then it's like very hard to let people know or like talk mm-hmm. about it uh mm-hmm. even with, among like latina latino latinas mm-hmm. um so yeah i would say solidarity and find community as much as possible yeah so if you're a uv student who identifies as latina or xa latin american include all of the things there find us reach out to us we've got our book club that meets regularly we've got alliances between and among students faculty and staff you're not alone and if you are queer, whether you're brown or not, and you feel like you have no community in the outdoors here in Utah, please let me know and we will get you connected with people. I love that. Finding and seeking out this solidarity, because even though we can all have different hardships, we can have different tribulations, different things that are happening, whether it be like tribulations from being a part of the LGBTQ plus community, from being an immigrant, from being a second generation, third generation immigrant or from being like attacked by media portrayals of what you are what you are portrayed as in the media. Whatever tribulation, big or small, like there is solidarity and that's one thing, like seek out those people that are gonna stand with you because those are the ones that actually matter. Because people who are gonna attack your identity, who are gonna attack um who are gonna not be supportive with you throughout your tribulations you need to find new people. <laughs> they're not new pe- they're not going to be your people. But one last thing on this topic is that with trauma and with violence and with everything that we have talked about, like all of this like trauma and that can become generational trauma, um maybe it may not have started with you, but it can end with you. So you have the power to really change that to change how like things are perceived down the family line. You, you have the power to change that. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And specifically, thank you, Leah, and thank you, Jose, for being a part of this episode. See you guys. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Maria. This was a ton of fun. All right, bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Latinx of Utah Valley podcast. I will be back next week with a whole nother episode. But before ending this episode, I'd like to give a special thanks to our sound engineer, Meg McKellar, for making this show possible, as well as Kevin McLeod for the music. <laughs>